everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is, <laughs> I have a hard time believing this, this is the second anniversary of Everyday Anarchism. I am doing this podcast. Uh, I have been doing it for two years. My guest today is Ruth Kinna, who was was one of my earliest guests. I think you were my third guest. You were also my guest for the first anniversary episode. I think you're the most frequent guest, and uh, there was only one person to invite back on for the second anniversary episode. So Ruth, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, one more anniversary episode. Hopefully there'll be a third. Yeah, well, thank you for having me back. Oh, it's such a it's such a pleasure and I should say that you know, some episodes generate a few emails and some episodes generate no emails, but the episodes I've done with you Ruth have been some of the most consistently praised episodes from <laughs> the listeners. So it's well, it's just nice been Yes. Well, you should. Uh, that That's why I told you, because I thought it would be nice to know. Um, so everyone who has listened to this podcast probably knows who you are, but I'll just say by way of introduction that you are, uh, in my opinion, one of the leading figures in what we could call anarchist studies or anarchist uh, academia, the intellectual field of study and production on anarchism, which I would say this podcast is also a uh, a, a very small um, and less professionalized branch of anarchist studies. So I've invited you on uh, to discuss this topic because it's one that I hear occasionally out there, sort of that anarchist studies is um, perhaps a waste of time, mm -hmm. or at least some of the activists, let's say this, people who consider themselves anarchists and are out there living anarchic lives want to know what is the point of people like you and me, professors with PhDs, talking about these ideas and publishing books that, you know, no one can afford and they just go yep. into libraries and that sort of thing. And I should say that I don't think that's what you are doing with books like The Government of No One and the books of an anarchist constitution. So this is less a question about your work specifically, which is wonderful and I think everyone values, and more just this bigger question. What what are we doing here if we are anarchists or trying to be anarchists and yet we are academics or intellectuals? We don't seem to be the revolutionary subject. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm talking too much. Go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we get it from both sides, actually. I mean, you know, I think the academics don't really think that we're doing anything useful either. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I must I must agree. I must agree with you. I must agree with you there. And a story I've told lots of times, but I'll just tell it again, is I wrote a dissertation on social change, progress, disorder in America from 1870 to 1920. And I did not mention the anarchists, except for the fact that Jane Addams was willing to talk to them. I did uh -huh. not encounter them. And not a single person on my committee was like, hey, maybe Emma Goldman should go in this <laughs> dissertation. It's like, whoa. The idea that they would have suggested that the anarchists were part of this yeah. moment was it was considered almost silly to talk yeah. about anarchism because yeah. anarchists are are silly and not worth talking about. Yeah, and I and I think that's where I sort of started. That I mean, when I was um, so when I was an undergraduate, um, and I first came across anarchism, I I I mean, I realized pretty quickly that there was a literature that and that this was read, readily available to me, but. I suppose I was sort of puzzled by the absence of the anarchists in non-anarchist literature. And um, 
and uh, yeah, and 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 the actually what what anarchists had to say about some of that literature. So one of the things that really struck me actually was, for example, the complete neglect of um, historians of ideas to to think seriously about Bakunin's critique of Rousseau. <laughs> Uh, and 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 I suppose that that got me thinking. I mean, quite selfishly about wanting to find out more. So I started as someone who who really just wanted to find out more about Kropotkin and spend. I mean, it was a very selfish pastime. You know that I had uh, three years of funding to to sit there and and I mean, it took me an awful lot longer, but but to to investigate these ideas and to think of of anarchism as um, not exhaustively, but at least in part, a political theory, and and I think that that's um, an important thing to think. Um, and I think actually, we or anarchists miss a trick if they don't cover all of the bases. So I agree that anarchism is a movement, that anarchism is a practice. I agree with all of that, but it is also a set of ideas, and it's a political theory. And uh, we learn um, as anarchists in engaging with that that body of ideas. And I suppose that the position I've come to over time is that we contribute by trying to explain this properly uh, to those who would otherwise refuse to engage with with anarchism. So if you don't engage with non-anarchists in ways that they kind of understand actually you, you leave the field open to precisely the people that, that activists absolutely hate who want to tell anarchists what they believe and completely misrepresent them and distort their, their thinking in the process. So I don't want to speak for anybody when I talk about anarchism. I don't want to try and say that, that what I'm doing is more valuable than, than what anybody else is doing, but I do think that there's a gap there and I think that, that, that those who are sympathetic to anarchists, anarchism or or who think of themselves as anarchists can can do some valuable work in in exploring that and explaining it to other people. Uh, Ruth, I think unfortunately we're done with that question. You answered it <laughs> so well. <laughs> I I mean seriously though, I um I would say that's probably my answer as well. But I could I've never articulated it that well or been able to put it so. Precisely. And I guess to speak again, biographically, very briefly, I was one of those a academics for whom anarchism had no value and was and was barely mentioned. I mean, I remember um, when the uh, the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests started happening in the United States, which I believe was was 2016. And it's hard. I just want to remind all the listeners, especially I know there's some younger listeners out there who barely remember 2016. Hmm. Black Lives Matter, like the New Yorker ran an article in, I think, 2017 about Black Lives Matter as a as a failure, as something that um, had just not succeeded. Uh -huh. And after what happened during covid and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in America and around the world in 2019. Now there's BLM signs and T-shirts all over the United States. In 2017, 2018, Black Lives Matter was a was a joke. It was a failure. 
and anarchism was given as the explanation mm. for Black Lives Matter's failure. You know, those guys in the 60s, they knew what they were doing. They organized. They had demands. They picked a very, very respectable and charismatic leader, um, that sort of thing. And I think in the 60s, in a lot of ways, were quite anarchic. But the the civil rights playbook, and when I say those guys in the 60s, I mean Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean the yippies and the SDSers who were in in many ways more anarchist and that Black Lives Matter had just failed because it was embodying anarchist thoughts. It didn't have a leader. It didn't have a movement. It was inspired by Occupy Wall Street. And so anarchism was once again, as it has been for as long as there has been since the Palmer raids, I guess, anarchism was once again in the United States, a joke, a failure a historical mistake. Mm. It doesn't feel that way to me right now, post-COVID, post the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, with the wave of union organizing we're seeing. It doesn't feel that way. And the fact that I was one of those people who was a historian of ideas and trying to find the ideas that would help the left organize Mm. in the early 21st century and I missed anarchism mm. and was among the group that was criticizing Black Lives Matter for being anarchists. If, if those of you who have listened to this podcast for the last two years can can believe that, it's, it's hard for me to not understand, to not value the work that people like you have been doing, Ruth. Because when I came to find this set of ideas interesting and inspiring, I wouldn't have had any way through it or into it without people like you, your book, The Government of No One, and the, the the anarchist studies work. I mean, I would say, I've been talking too much, I'll, uh, I'll turn it over. I would say that there's sort of, we can or maybe we shouldn't divide sort of academic or intellectual anarchists into two groups, sort of those who provide a theory from uh, an intellectual position, and then those who study the theory from a more academic or scholarly tradition, I'm I'm not sure that this distinction is really that valuable. But I would say that academics can do both of those things. They can do the theorizing, and they can study the theories. And without academics doing that, I would have been lost when I set out to to learn the ideas of this movement. Yeah, I agree. So I think I think there's a lot of there's. I think it's helpful to think about the grey areas. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, I suppose what I mean one of the roles of intellectuals, I guess. I mean, I, I think Chomsky is right. One of the roles of intellectuals is to is you know is to use the platform um, and partly to sort of to you know if you like speak truth to power to to try and show where the um, where the flaws in in public reasoning lie, and to present a different way of of thinking about the problems, because you know, so one of the things that 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 he has done, I mean, consistently over all of these years, is to is to put the other case, is to sort of say, look, you know, you can't just think of 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 international relations in terms of of this bipolar struggle, and that one side is good and the other side is bad, you know. You might not agree with with Chomsky's analysis, but but uh, you know one of the things that Chomsky has done, I think, is to show how uh, an intellectual can take on their own government and reveal the 
the I mean, you know, the the lies, if you like, the political lies that are told in order to keep people passive. Uh, so that's a really important function. And I think that blurs quite seamlessly, if you like, into a into an idea that um, or into a into a. Uh, an assumption that that what we think and how we think about things matters, um, and that we, you know, that, that changing the world. Of course, you know, you change the world. You know, the way you change the world is by engaging with sort of material forces. But ideas are material forces too, and unless we have some sort of sense of uh, what we mean by, you know, even basic concepts, what we mean by being free, what we mean by uh, being equal, you know, what these things might. Uh, or how you know, translate into into policy. You know, I, it seems to me that we we don't have a sensible politics, and that's what I think the nineteenth century anarchists were all about was was thinking how familiar concepts, how uh, ideas that were buried. I mean, in an American context, that were buried within the Constitution, actually could could point to a very different uh, set of values and priorities and and practices and and ways of life and. You know, it's though it's that engagement, if you like, with the political uh, landscape uh, that that separates the or that that gives the 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 value to the role of the anarchist intellectual. So I would call someone like uh, Josiah Warren an anarchist intellectual, uh, even if he didn't call himself an anarchist. I mean, he certainly gives birth to a whole um, you know current of ideas that 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 were and are anarchist, and 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 it was a, an invaluable contribution. Yeah, I agree, and I still haven't. Um, I still haven't given Warren and some of those other people uh, the the time and attention either. In my once I get time to study them myself, then the listeners you will you you will hear the results of that on this podcast. So that's that's something down the line. I do want to say that Chomsky is another. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned Chomsky because I, of course, as an undergraduate, was was taught. Chomsky, um, taking taking theory classes in the English department, it was impossible not to encounter Chomsky. But the fact that he was an avowed anarchist was not was not part of my knowledge of him. Maybe that was somewhere. And so Chomsky does seem to me to be a key figure because he is someone who is respected across the left, and indeed is 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 given the the same sort of respect that people like uh, Michel Foucault and mm-hmm. Judith Butler are given on the right in that they're a thinker who the right hates very much and laments mm. that they are being taught to American high school and college students. Mm. And for this figure who everyone agrees on is a towering figure of the American left, a great awakener, or indeed, you know, the great deceiver of America's youth, depending on mm. your perspective to see that he's an anarchist to me opened up a field you know and when i say like oh i'm an anarchist and people say like uh blah 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 whatever anarchism is dumb and it's like don't you like chomsky and they'll say something like oh i didn't know he was an anarchist or yeah i guess he kind of is an anarchist isn't he so i think chomsky is a great person to mention uh in this yeah he has been doing the work of an anarchist intellectual in terms that anyone who reads the New York Times opinion page can follow and understand. And that's 
the i mean it seems like that's what we should all be doing well that's what chomsky says all of us intellectuals yeah. should be doing yeah i think that's right and i think you know that the his his status if you like um you know the, the the profile that he has his reputation is is also in itself important because it then allows you to ask the question well what sort of anarchist is he you know so you're opening yeah. up yeah and i think that's the point isn't it that that the anarchist intellectual is there not to be um is not there in order to it's not there as the technocrat is not there as the uh, the authority, if you like. I mean, clearly he is incredibly authoritative <laughs> about the minutiae of American foreign, foreign policy. Um, but but he's he's he stands there as someone who um, not only acknowledges but sort of celebrates his his uh, his anarchist turn as a youth, mm-hmm. uh, and who has engaged with um, anarchist movements and talked about his influences and and particularly people like Rocker and the syndicalists and, and and all of this and it's not it doesn't have to be in depth the fact is that he acknowledges this tradition uh, and that that as well as sort of um, promoting uh, critique of government also opens up the possibility of thinking about well what do we mean by anarchism if we and we have someone there in front of us someone really important uh, to, to to start sort of thinking about that question and I think that in itself is a service actually. Yeah, I agree. Um, listeners are maybe tired of hearing me mention this interview I did with Anthony Caldellis on the Byzantine Empire, but uh, Anthony's work, if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it, listeners, is is about how the, the Byzantine Empire conceived itself as, as Roman and how the Romans conceived themselves as a republic and about how street protests were a legitimate form of the Roman republic so the idea that something that we would call mob rule or Uh, or anarchy was in fact they didn't call it anarchy but something that that something that a conservative would call mob rule and disorder was a legitimate part of politics in the byzantine empire that dread you know orientalist despotism that anthony is able to read it as an expression of democracy i found so thrilling and when i emailed him I just thought, oh, this guy's going to think, like, I'm a joke. I think Byzantium is anarchism. And he immediately was like, yes, let's do this. And then I was listening to his podcast later, and he said, you know, I grew up uh, – this was not in conversation with me, but in conversation with someone else on his own podcast. He said, you know, I grew up in Athens, and but I really knew everything that was going on in America because, of course, I read Chomsky. And that just that just made it click for Anthony – a, a, a teenage Chomskyan. Uh, it wasn't weird that I thought the Byzantine Republic was kind of anarchistic. In fact, I'm I'm sure I didn't ask him about this. His his Chomskyan thinking is part of what led him to his views about the Byzantine Empire. And uh-huh. so, without without Chomsky's, as you say, authoritative or or legitimate legitimizing influence. Not that we should consider him the authority uh. or legitimate, but that other figures outside of anarchism consider him a legitimate thinker uh. and an anarchist has has authorized some space for anarchism in a way that, of course, as an anarchist, I think is is bad. You shouldn't need a towering intellectual great old man to have your ideas be listened to. But within the world we live in, that's kind of 
that's how the game is played and right. his his influence is crucial yeah that's right and i think you know he's unusual if you like because he, one because he's been going for such a long time and 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 two he sort of stood stood up as a as an anarchist uh you know pretty early on um but i mean he's he's unusual i suppose because there aren't that many people within his um, field of expertise who would who would label themselves in the same kind of way but but I would say that you know he has the same sort of significances i mean it's it's important to remember you know or to 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 see the links between people and ideas um so and you and you see this within the cultural sphere too so film directors authors artists you know you know there is a whole milieu of people who who are who have who are who have thought of themselves as anarchist or who have been on the fringes of anarchist movements, and when you start to uh, to to put that picture together, and you see that there is actually you know uh, a deep rooted perspective on life on on things uh, that is anarchist or anarchistic, then actually it it just helps you break down some of the orthodoxies and. So I think these things, this idea of there being an intellectual movement is a really, really important thing. Yeah, I agree. And uh, there is no there is no point of ideas if they don't make a difference in the world. That's, you know, Jamesian pragmatism 101. And it's very clear that the ideas of anarchism, whether they've come from Chomsky or anywhere else, have have made a difference. Um I like this idea that ideas are also material things. I mean, fair, fair, fair enough. Everything is everything and nothing is anything. Um, I guess what I meant by that, I don't know if you know this, I mean, Kropotkin's book um, uh, on the French Revolution. Um, and and I think the first chapter is called The Idea. Yeah. And, no. and and the argument is that, you know, the, I mean, there are two points, I guess, he wants to make. One is that, the, I mean, which, I mean, that's more controversial, I guess. But the one idea is that uh, anarchist intellectuals like Kropotkin were only expressing what they found in working class movements or what mm. they found in grassroots movements. So I think that's a slightly disingenuous, but um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, but but I think the it's not entirely disingenuous so but so what he's saying is that you know having uh if you listen to 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 to, to ordinary conversations and ordinary grievances uh then you can build a picture of 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 a problem and a an aspiration to which you can give voice mm-hmm. um and it's important that you do that because the argument, the other argument of, of the French Revolution, why he starts with this thing called the idea is that, you know, he's he's conscious of the fact that at the point of the revolution, you know, France has been unstable for a while and something is going to give, you know, the system can't hold. And his and his thinking is that when you when you when you come into a period of instability, so you could say you know, like the uh, the Arab Spring or, I mean, any of these sort of recent movements that we've looked at, um, th- that the direction of travel is significantly influenced by the traction that ideas gain within movements. It's not just that, you know, militaries will step in and hold guns to people's heads. I mean, they do do that. But Kropotkin's argument was in, in the context of France 
the idea that prevailed was the idea of the bourgeoisie. Mm. And the idea that, that didn't prevail was the idea of the working class uh, or the ordinary people. So what you have is, you know, you, 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 you have a movement that's being generated by an aspiration that is going to be defeated because the other side, if you like, have already got their ducks in a row and they know how they're going to implement and entrench uh, their political values. Uh, and it's and it's not going to be for the common good, but you're going to be told that it's for the common good. And so his fear is that, you know, unless we think about the kinds of, of aspirations we have and how they might translate, then we're always going to be subject to to the prevailing logics. Yeah, oh, I, I think that's an excellent point. And I just I just want to say, I guess I'll leave that part in where I say, you know, everything is everything and nothing is anything. Um, that was me being too flippant. Let me try and put it in, again, Jamesian terms. I take the, you know, the radically empirical view from James that distinctions like between ideas and mm. things. When some, you know, if Hegel says ideas are everything and Marx says no, things are everything, this is a ridiculous and false yeah. distinction. And obviously things and ideas interpenetrate to the point yeah. of incomprehensibility. Not that they're incomprehensible, but pulling out an idea that leads you to do something in the material world, which creates ideas, which leads people to do something. It's obviously that they are intertwined yeah. in a way that, in, in, in a way that to, the reason why I said that is because I'm skeptical whenever I start talking to a Marxist who tries to explain to me how things are more important than ideas, because yeah. ideas are things and things are ideas, yeah. I would yeah. say. And that's, yeah. that gets you nowhere except that it gets you out of a silly binary or a prevailing logic yeah. as you're saying yeah yeah and it, and it, and it, yeah and i guess i mean there's a there's i think there's a link there too in 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 the way that um uh liberal democracies function which again is something that chomsky talks about in terms of manufacturing consent you know yeah. and you know <laughs> the ideas Absolutely. you know uh, are part and parcel of that yeah, a, a couple of quick things I wanted to touch on on what you had been saying earlier in terms of Kropotkin's view. So first of all, the idea that, as you say, the slightly disingenuous idea that he's just expressing the views of the working people. This is obviously the heart of the definition of everyday anarchism that I'm using that, you know, comes from Graeber's little like, are you an anarchist? The answer might surprise you. And in some ways is related uh -huh. to Marx's baseline communism i mean i i want to emphasize the everyday graber's example of people get on the bus politely and friendlily and if someone drops their backpack when they're getting on the bus someone else pick it picks up. it up yeah. yeah and there's there's no forced order there the other thing thinking about you know the the anarchist milieu the the writers and the literary figures and the artists and everything this struck me very hard when I started studying anarchism. The, the textbooks and literature, the anthologies, you know, what you read, you force, you're forced to read John Milton as an undergraduate, right? And you read uh, Blake and, and Shelley. And if you're an American, you read Emerson and Thoreau. And you might be able to read all those people without... Um, Kropotkin or mm -hmm. or Godwin or Rousseau coming up but every single one of those towering figures is if not an anarchist and I'm comfortable I mean Shelley if Godwin is an anarchist Percy Bysshe Shelley yeah, is Shelley an anarchist is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously so, and then uh, 
the reason why I need to do a whole series on this at some point, the reason why artists get together and write manifestos is not because artists do that. It's because anarchists do that. And a group of anarchists called the pointillists did this and got Uh together and wrote a manifesto. And now we say, oh yeah, those artists, they are always writing manifestos and forming movements. No, it's completely backwards. Uh Artists are informed by anarchism, starting with the pointillists. And that's Uh where this tradition comes from. So if you're thinking, oh, those artists, they're always forming groups and writing manifestos. It's because of anarchism. The history of art and literature and film in in the past two centuries at least in the western world it's pretty easy to read as a history of anarchism yeah and i i I double majored in literature and film studies as an undergraduate and again this this did not come up and it's just it's astonishing i read my chomsky and my shelley and my emerson but the a word was never was never said yeah yeah. Yeah, it's in, it is interesting. It's, I think it's also interesting the way that that um that some writers or I mean it seems to me and I've been doing some work recently on 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 Mary Wollstonecraft and um and the vindication of the rights of of women and and it it's been slated by many feminists over many years because it doesn't fit a standard socialist model. Uh, it seems to be a you know a track for bourgeois uh, feminists, and I think it's a complete you know I think it's a misreading, and I think one of the reasons that, that the misreading prevails is because alternative ways of thinking about uh, domination and the nature of oppression are kind of factored out mm. through a class lens. I mean, if you look at her through a class lens, she she looks a bit odd. But if you don't look at, I mean, if you look at her as a critic of as a critic of republicanism, you know, someone who is coming out precisely of that milieu of, of Godwin, leading to Shelley and, and 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 all of that, then she makes much better sense. And I think sometimes, you know, we, um, it's not only that we sort of airbrush anarchism out of our discussions, but we 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 distort the people who are, you know, in some ways really really radical. Mm-hmm. Um, because we simply don't read them through a, an anarchistic lens. Yeah, wonderful. That's that's something that I've got in mind for as as this podcast goes on, of spending more and more time with these canonical cultural figures and and showing their engagement with with anarchism. Um, I, I mentioned a few other things that we could talk about if we have time, but maybe let's set the, I'll set this aside at least for now and say one thing that struck me as as you were talking and mentioning Chomsky and then I told my like micro history of how the how anarchism was perceived in 2016 mm-hmm. versus how it's perceived in 2021 there's obvious reasons I mean the the pandemic is the is the fulcrum on which that particular world moved but I'm wondering and this is putting you on the spot can you speak to sort of the the change in the perception of anarchism that you've seen or or has there been one over the past few decades is it how is it different from when you started out um to now are figures like graber or events like occupy wall street did 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 they make a difference or have you just sort of been you know in 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 your 
anarchist silo apart from the rest of the world which denies the value of of anarchism or i'm saying denied the value of anarchism until three years ago yeah no i'm happy to be in my little bubble but um i guess the thing that really changed um public perceptions was the the social justice movement 1999 early 2000s so um i mean that was i mean that was a again a, a you know a very diverse um movement but it it was labeled anarchist because mm. it didn't fit a party political <laughs> model right and and organizationally it seemed to speak to 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 anarchist um to anarchist principles leaderlessness and uh horizontalism and uh no programs you know having benchmarks instead all of this and and i think that that was really helpful in some ways um I mean, it's it stimulated a lot of debate about what was the relationship between a horizontalist movement and an anarchist movement, and and all of this literature and social movement studies. Um, but it put anarchism back on the map, mm. um, and I think it. I mean, it really sort of drew attention to uh, groups of anarchists. I mean, particularly in America, but not just America, who had been you know working for years and years, you know, under the radar, and suddenly you know um, that you know they became. I mean, I wouldn't say sort of um, everyday currency, but I mean, people started to know about Fifth Estate. I mean, they started to to engage again with, I mean, and, and the same in, in Europe too, that there were, you know, groups that have been working for, for years, you know, um, who suddenly gained traction, who gained attention. Uh, people like Colin Ward regained, you know, some, some academic attention. Um, so I think that was the big thing that, that changed everything. But I suppose it also then kick-started a, a debate about um, um, theory and practice, organisation versus uh, ideology, you, you know, and the whole kind of rerun of a, a debate about what is anarchism. Um, and I'm not sure that was that was um, entirely fruitful, but um, it was better than not having a discussion. Um, mm. And and I think there was a recognition. Fairly generally across, I mean, it, you know, coinciding, I mean, or, or shortly coming after the collapse of of of, um, of Soviet communism, um, it did sort of flag a realignment on the left. You know, a general kind of anarchist turn. Um, so I think that was the thing that changed, um, and and there were all sorts of 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 good things that came out of that about the relationship between anarchists and feminists, anarchists and indigenous movements, you know, anarchism and, you know, so at at all. And, and, and as you say, black lives matter, you know, um, and I, and, and from that, you also then, I mean, particularly through things like black lives matter, uh, you get the, the possibility of interrogating much deeper convergences between abolitionists uh, you know the relationship between anarchists and and people like Angela Davis. Uh, you know that the, the, there becomes a, a different way of thinking about what a left could be, um, and all of that I think is is pretty positive. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree that it's positive. Um, now let me give you another potential controversy because uh, there is. I certainly have encountered this narrative that it's you know, this, this movement that arises in the late nineties and, you know, the flashpoint is, is the battle in the battle in Seattle, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I was 
15, 16 when that happened and did not know what was going on. I mean, I, I don't remember taking a, a, a personal stance, you know, but just like, what is happening? I mean, I, I had no framework to understand the battle in Seattle. There is a movement out there, though, Ruth. I mean, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you know these people as well as knowing of these people that wants to argue that anarchism became a sort of bourgeois movement in that moment that it lost its ability to organize the working class and became like children of professors children of doctors children of engineers and despite all of the attempts to talk about feminism and indigeneity and abolition and race the anarchist movement post the battle in seattle is I mean, trust fund kids is going a little too far, but this, this, there, at least there's that idea out there that well, every, everyone in an anarchist squat um, actually has a, a trust fund. And I'm wondering, obviously that's not true. Uh, I don't, you don't need to speak to that at all because that's, that's a ridiculous <laughs> caricature, but I'm wondering if you see that there is this divide that at least some activists claim that anarchism as it exists now is a sort of plaything for young people to use to rebel against their parents as opposed to something that could actually organize large groups of people against the system so i think there's i mean you know i I think the the rebellion thing that was a point that was also made about the 60s right that um yes that this was just a kind of a, a generational divide it would burn itself out anarchists you know you never found an anarchist who was over 25 um, apart from Chomsky, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, uh, I mean, it seems to me that the, the thing that the global justice movement did was was put global injustice on the map. And so, if you say, you know, the focus of the of the of the of the politics was on that uh, on that global inequality, then perhaps there's a case for saying some of the inequalities within the global north were bypassed or glossed over and and perhaps there's also um maybe that opens up the space then for for the for the subsequent sort of recuperation of of that critique of globalization by the right and the so-called left behinds and 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 that politics of of you know trumpist politics and populist politics so i think there's a i think there's a point to that but i think it's unfair in the sense that it suggests that there was no class dynamic in in that analysis i think that the the class dynamic was there it just that it was focused on the way in which global north and global south was operating and and if you think about things like i mean you know one of the big books that came out of that movement was no logo i mean actually you know one of the things that no logo did was was focus attention on the 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 really brutal exploitation of working classes in uh in the far east uh that were sustaining you know sort of uh, lifestyles that uh that that the west was enjoying that the that north was enjoying so i think it's um it was a it was a definitely there was a, a a shift but it's but i don't think it's fair to say that there was no appreciation of 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 the of of class within it uh it's just that it's it's its reach was broader yeah i think that i think that makes sense and 
it's if you're i mean from from my perspective at least living in the united states the, the various questions you raise related to the problems within the united states and i i, I mean i i usually say instead of the global north i like center periphery because yeah. you know because with the sense that there's a, also a million nodes on yeah. this so you know the 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 father in a patriarchal family can be at the periphery at his shitty job but then you know the wife or the children are at the periphery at, at the home i i like that as opposed yeah. to you know when people talk about the global north and i say well what do i do i'm i'm in the south in in the north and et cetera, et cetera. but whatever you say i i've never i've seen no sense that those issues all of those issues within the United States, the centers, the, the global north are, are being ignored. I do think it's when you look at the people who may be mostly from wealthy backgrounds mm -hmm. and maybe mostly white who are protesting, if you're seeing them only within the context of the United States, you might want to say, oh, those those hippies are going to go to law school when they turn 25 and maybe that's true but if you see that they're trying to focus your attention on the global inequality yeah. that's i there's no way to spend enough time and you and i have talked about this briefly before on the the inequalities on the the global system and the way that so much of the you know good old democratic socialist world that we would want within our countries would do nothing or might even be harmful. Corbyn and to a certain extent, Bernie Sanders, both for, for reasons that no, good historical reasons were both skeptical of open borders policies. And they were both, they, they were trying to cr protect their working class mm. constituents at a time when it seemed like everyone else in those respective countries were absolutely attacking those same members of the working class, unless you want to say that Trump was, you know, supporting them by bamboozling them. Uh -huh. But to hear that kind of thing, like, you know, we need to close the borders to protect the working class of Britain. That's the thing that I feel like is, is missing the true class element because to protect the working class of britain or to protect the working class of the united states without doing anything to deal with the global uh. indignities and injustices is not to is not to change anything in any useful way as far yeah. as i'm concerned and it's actually i mean it, it speaks to a much older politics as well which is the sort of 19th century trade union politics yes so, i know you know it, it's um <laughs> yeah it, it's it's no it's 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 a false economy. Oh, abs ab absolutely. And it, and you, after 1999, you should not be able to sustain that false economy. And I don't need to spend any more time talking about Jeremy uh, Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, but <laughs> they were people whose ideas were probably pretty well formed by 1999, yeah. I, would, I would guess. And that's one of the reasons why eventually we're going to have generational change in our political leadership eventually someday yep. and uh, oh i guess you guys did i won't mention your current prime minister um <laughs> unless you know by the time this airs who knows maybe he won't be the prime minister anymore <laughs> um we've 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 spoken for a little while we could certainly go on longer but i like occasionally making slightly shorter episodes although sure. 
this might, you know, I have one more question, which is how do you, Ruth, how do you talk to a a progressive, a good, you know, Jeremy Corbyn voter who, you know, wishes that labor was stronger and blah, 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 and et cetera, et cetera, but still finds the concept, the idea of anarchism silly, misguided, counterproductive, on the road to, to fascism. I have these conversations all the time. They're not usually very productive. So perhaps I'm asking just simply for me and the listeners can also uh, glean something from this. How do you speak to someone who seems to share your your view of the world, your broad sense of social solidarity and left-wing politics, but whose solutions seem to involve, you know, all of the things us anarchists hate, bureaucracy and the law and wow. the police and and all of these things. Can you can you help me? So, yeah, it's a tricky question, I think. Um I suppose I try and I try and um invite the skeptic to to articulate what the fear is. So is this because in the end it seems to me that this is always a kind of a a prejudice, isn't it, about um, other people not being rational or you know some people will be violent. What do you do about that? Well, you know, there are two alternatives. Well, there are three alternatives. You know, you face it directly, you try and talk it out, or you just repress it. Mm. So what what do you want? You just want to continue repressing this as if it doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, and and I think that's that's the way I go. I mean, in, and these arguments are, are so. I mean, it's another. I mean, these these arguments have different iterations. It's it's like the, you know, what what are you going to do with the with the slaves when you take away the care system of slavery? <laughs> <laughs> Because they won't be able to look after themselves, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a sort of, what do you do? What do we, you know, it, it's this, this sort of, what do you do about the women who are, who are going have to have to make a decision about who to vote for when they, they, they're just completely incapable? You know, what do you do? It's much better that they're told. It's much better that somebody else takes care of it. And, and in the end, it's not. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's not to diminish the significance of the problem that, that we face um, in deeply divided, polarized, armed communities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the state is, not, I mean, that's happening in the state. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not a result of, of anarchic behavior. Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, the question is, how do we deal with it? Not how does an anarchist deal with it in an anarchist society? The question is, how do we deal with it now? And, and, and what do you want to do? You want to just lock everybody up? Yeah, I I think the first of all, I think that's a that's a that's a great answer, and that that's going to help me in these conversations. Secondly, I think the question of abolition is a wonderful one because I you know, as a historian of nineteenth century America, I'm very familiar with these debates, and you have people who are of course against slavery, but they'll say like, well, we can't. You know, they would say they are not abolitionists because abolition was, you know, kind of capital A abolition was in slavery now. Oh. 
and they would say, you know, if we did that, there's going to be chaos, disorder, violence. They are absolutely correct. That would happen. But it's either a problem of courage uh. or simply a problem of the imaginary to say, yes, you're absolutely right. There will be violence and terror if we end slavery overnight in 1855. Uh. What do you think we have right now in yeah. 1855, if not all those terror things. and violence organized in such a way that there's no potential to resolve that oh. and so that that terror and violence will go in perpetuity. Oh. It's scary, especially for those of us living comfortable lives to unleash the forces of terror and violence. But I do think it's important to remind people that the forces of terror and violence are there right now. Exactly. They're, on, they're on a leash mm -hmm. and people like you and I are part of the system that is that is holding uh. the leash i mean our our elected representatives are the ones with the leash and and that that's a hard thing to get someone to acknowledge that they are yep. part of that and yep. even if they can't acknowledge it it's a hard thing to get them to say you know what let's find out what happens if you in these systems of oppression but the alternative is to just say i think if you reach this point of clarity is to say, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with current oppression that I am responsible for and benefiting from as opposed to an unknown future. But yes, if you or, really, or, I, I think that's exactly. And I think that's the, that's, that's the kind of the nub of the, of, of the critique of, of of representation isn't it that it that it enables people to say this isn't my problem mm. somebody else is going to deal with it <laughs> so i don't have to worry about what goes on in these institutions because i just know that they're there and and i guess what what the anarchist is saying is but you know you have to be responsible for them Yeah, we are we are all we are all responsible. Yeah, for them. And anarchism says you can do something about it. You, yes, that's right. Not not your representative. You yep. and you can do something about it today. Yeah, yeah. It it sounds like we found some value in intellectual anarchism. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I hope so. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, but more importantly, for all that you do and have done. I, I so enjoy our talks. Yeah, me too. 